You can be turning in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, I'm continuing my series on different attributes of God, and this morning I want us to, to think about the attribute of peace, that our God is a prince of peace. Um, on the subject of peace, I don't know anybody who has spent more money pursuing peace than, um, can't even think of his name now, what's the guy down in Atlanta, Ted uh, Turner, there we go, he's coming to me, Ted Turner, Ted Turner spent one billion dollars. He gave one billion dollars to the United Nations, hoping the United Nations would be a world police force to produce peace uh, throughout the world. And in that process, he also um, uh, created a book competition promising a large reward to whoever could write the best manuscript for the United Nations to follow. And uh, the book competition was a bust. After 10,000 manuscripts were submitted, he said there was not one plausible method that could be followed for world peace. I've never seen anybody with more passion for it, more bucks for it, than Ted Turner. Um, But as I thought about that, the passions of men for peace will never succeed at peace. The only way to get inner peace and outer peace, even world peace, is faith in and life with Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, because he's the only one who's conquered sin where war starts. He's the only one who's conquered Satan who tempts us to affliction and war. And he's the only one who's conquered the grave, which is the motivation for war. The Prince of Peace is Christ, and our passion must be to run to Him, not to some uh, method. Let me uh, share with you Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. A lot of times it's read during the Christmas season, Christmas pageants, but uh, perhaps not the context we think of is here. Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7 says, A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So God's got a passion. God's got a passion for Christ's government and Christ's government bringing in peace forevermore. He says his passion will accomplish it. Now, when you think about the context here, I want you to see the context is, is, is one in which... Um, It's not just a cute little story that leads us to Jesus, but this is a declaration that a child's going to be born who is Christ, and Christ is going to grow to the place of being king, and he's going to have a kingdom like no others, and he's going to be called the Prince of Peace, and his government, the government of his kingdom, will produce peace without end. 
forevermore. Um, and we need to see that. Look at, and let me, let me tell you why the context is not just inner peace. Look back a few chapters, chapter 7, verse 1. And this is what Isaiah is going through as he's writing this. Isaiah 7, 1 says, Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Haram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. So this is a time of military uh, conquests. You got Jerusalem right here. You got Aram up here. You got Israel right here. These two will want to come down and do battle against Jerusalem. They were thinking, you know, bloodthirsty people just wanting to, to take us. You know, this was a time of, of bloodshed, a time of warfare. And in the midst of that context, they get a promise from Isaiah. Yeah, but a child's going to be born to you. And he's going to set up a government. And it's going to be a government of peace. And you're, you're not just thinking conversion here. You're thinking, oh, that would be great if someone could solve this dilemma, this nation against nation kind of conquest that's constantly going on around us. So as, as I try to unpack for you Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, I, I don't want you to, to, to miss the exchange of both contexts all the way through the Scriptures. There's uh, overlap from time to time. Yes, the Scripture talks about an internal conversion to Christ that brings an internal peace that passes understanding. We get that. But the Scripture also speaks about a, a government that rules the nations with peace. And we sometimes don't see that. And I hope this morning you see both. Let's deal with the conversion piece and then what I'll call the cultural piece of, of all the world. First of all, as you think about this language, what's in the language? Prince of peace. I mean, you, you can't escape the fact that Prince of Peace means at least Christ has peace in his grasp. He holds it. He is in control of this whole matter of peace. And in Christ's grasp is not, and that's why I want you to get, begin to think, it's not just an inner peace. He has within his grasp, he holds the whole world in his hands. He has within his grasp world peace. He can't accomplish that. He can not only deal with the terror in our hearts, but he can deal with the terror in the world. And he is quite capable of all that. Let's just, when I, when I look at a passage like this and say, well, what does this really mean? I begin to, to pull back and say, well, this, what does the chapter mean? What's the next chapter mean? What does the book mean? Let me just kind of give you a quick survey through the book of Isaiah on the subject of peace. What's in Isaiah's mind as he thinks about peace? Look at chapter 26, verse 3. Isaiah 26, verse 3. It says, The steadfast mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Some of you might have memorized that. The mind who has stayed on Christ. The, the mind that's fixed on Christ. He will keep him in perfect peace because your, your focus, your, 
your life is on Him. So that's clearly an, an internal peace that's being spoken of. Look at verse 11 and 12, same chapter. O Lord, your hands lifted up, yet they do not seize it. They see your zeal for the people and are not and are put to shame. Indeed, fire will devour your enemies. Lord, you will establish peace for us since you've also performed for us all our works. So there you see the overlap. That's clearly God raising up fire to devour and establish a peace around us, not just peace in our hearts, but provide peace around us. Look at chapter 32, verse 1. It says, Behold, a king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly. Skip over to some of this reigning. Verse 15, Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered as a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness will abide in the fertile field, and the work of righteousness will be peace. And the service of righteousness, quietness, and confidence forever. Then my people will live in a peaceful habitation, and in secure dwellings, and in undisturbed resting places. Uh, Another new ingredient in this chapter is that this peace that's coming to us, both internal and external, is established on the foundation of righteousness. You see that theme over and over, that the king will reign righteously, and righteousness is the foundation of his throne. And because of his righteousness, he will be able to bring peace. Uh, Look at chapter 52, verse 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. And we, we love that verse because it brings something to us internally, but notice it also brings something externally. There's a, an aspect of salvation that is reigning over and ruling the earth. Uh, Chapter 54, verse 10 says, the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord, who is compassion on you. God's made a vow to produce peace. He calls it here a covenant of peace. He says, and that's not going to be shaken. Nothing's going to disturb that. I will see that through. Um, you know, as I was reading all that, I, I was thinking, uh, trying to find out where it was, Isaiah 48. It's mentioned several places in Isaiah, uh, verse 22. Um, There's no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Think about that. Isaiah 48, 22 is also in 57. Uh, There's no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Well, obviously, if, if peace, the foundation for peace is righteousness, the wicked, in contrast, are not going to have it. They're always going to be in turmoil. They're always going to be seeking it, but not succeeding in getting it. It's only given through a righteous prince, the prince of prince, says the king of kings. It's Christ. So 
if Christ is the only one who has the righteousness, if Christ is the only one who can bring the peace, there should be the question from us is, okay, well, how do I get Christ? How do I get into Christ? Well, let me take you to the book of Romans and just think through the answer to that very quickly. Romans um, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 speaks about us being um, away from Christ, in need of Christ. Romans 2... 14 and 15 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, bearing witness in their thoughts alternately, accusing or else defending them uh, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. There's a sense in which God says every person, Christian or non-Christian, they have a law of God within them. Their conscience bothers them at times. That's what's causing this turmoil. And they know they're guilty of certain things. They should be seeking peace. And that peace can only come through Christ. Look over at chapter 8, verse 6. It says uh, of Romans... It says, the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God for it does not subject itself to the law of God and it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Um, it's telling us there clearly, the chapter goes on, but our need is for the spirit of Christ to, to come into us. Because our minds are set on ourselves. It's set on the flesh. And if the mind is set on the flesh, you're hostile towards God. You're creating conflict. You're creating warfare. He says the way out of that is to get your mind set on God, set on the Spirit. And you can't get your mind set on the Spirit without the Spirit. You must be filled with God's Spirit. And this is a chapter on that. Look over back at chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to get rid of this conflict between God and me. The only way to get peace is through Christ. I need his spirit. I need Christ himself to dwell within me. And Christ in me gives me his righteousness, gives me the new mindset to be fixed on Christ Um, and that mindset fixed on Christ eliminates that conflict. So how do I get Christ? Well, the answer is in Romans 10, verses 9 through uh, 13. If you don't know how to get Christ, here it is. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The Scripture uh, says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, um, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Meaning, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek, if you call on the name of the Lord, you've been taught uh, only the Jews get 
salvation in Christ. They're, God chose them as a special nation. And, but here he said, no, 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 no. I'm choosing whether you're a Jew or a Greek, whoever, whatever category you're in, you call on the name of the Lord and say, I want you as my Lord. I want to be in your kingdom. God says he makes it happen. And those who trust in Christ are never disappointed. You never wake up one day and say, oh, man, I chose the wrong team. I'm on the wrong side. We're doomed. Not in Christ. In Christ, his kingdom has no end. You will never be disappointed in the kingdom of Christ. So choose Christ. Run to Christ. Um, we must be converted. You know, I, I once wonder sometimes we feel like Adam and Eve. We sin, our conscience bothers us, we know we sin. Instead of running to God for forgiveness and mercy, we run away from God. We start covering ourselves, and we try to hide from God. Our conscience is conflicted, our hearts are churning. We know we're in rebellion, and we know He can cast us into the pits of hell forever, and the solution is to run to Him, not away. Because in Christ is righteousness. In Christ is salvation. And many people spend their lives running away from God, trying to hide from God instead of running to Him. Run to Him. Confess He is Lord. He is your hope. He is your peace. He's your salvation. That brings that wonderful internal peace. The conflict between us and God is removed. But let's go back to Isaiah chapter 9 and think again. It's not just about this wonderful internal peace. He sets up a a government that has no end. I want us to think about that. Christ offers more than conversion peace, but he offers a cultural peace as well. Uh, this world is full of murderers and thieves and gossips and covetous and adulterers, and the list goes on and on. There's constant conflict because of this these sins that are in our lives. How, do, how does that get solved? Well, Isaiah 9... 6 and 7 says, he's going to have, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And there'll be, verse 7, there'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. He's going to establish it. He's going to uphold it with justice and righteousness. So when does Christ's government get set up? A lot of people are confused, you know, well, Christ is obviously not set up as government, so it's going to come at the end of the world. At some point, there, there's going to be a, an establishment of the government of Christ. I don't think so. I think his government has been set up. And many times we're missing this. When did it get set up? When Christ died, buried, and he was risen, when he rose from the dead, where did he go? He immediately ascended to the Father. Look at Daniel chapter 7. He tells us what happens when Christ um, uh, uh, goes out of the tomb. Daniel chapter 7. Verse 13 and 14. It says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven one like a son of man was coming. So this is Jesus. And in this vision Daniel has says, I'd look, and there's Jesus, and he's coming. And where did he come to? Verse, keep in verse 13. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So this is Christ, the Son of Man, coming now up to God the Father and presented before him. And to him, speaking of Christ, 
was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Isaiah was talking about that. He's going to have a kingdom that's never going to cease. And in Daniel 7, it says he was given that kingdom as he ascended to the Father. Same chapter, verse 27. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Now, that's Christ's kingdom. It's an everlasting kingdom. He has been given that kingdom. He has it now. And it says we are called there the people of the saints. All the, the kingdoms of the world will be given to us. We're on the side of the king of kings. And so if he is over all, we are over all. And the, see the significance of that. Um, and by the way, uh, in uh, when Jesus was born, let me turn real quickly, Luke chapter 1. Um, the angel told this to, 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 to Mary uh, when, when Jesus uh, was born. Verse 31 of Luke 1 says, Behold, speaking to Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. Same language as Daniel. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So the king is going to be Christ. He's going to be given a kingdom. And the angel's telling this to Mary even before Christ is born. Realize it's happening now. So this kingdom is established. Um, and a lot of times we just, we just miss it. You know, think about it. Uh, think about the kingdoms you know. The kingdoms you know that have fallen. Kingdoms topple all the time. And I think in, in, in my lifetime, you know, I've seen uh, the Russian kingdom topple. The Korean kingdom topple. The Iraq kingdom topple. Some kingdoms in a, a Africa topple. Um, Cuba topple. I mean, you can think through kingdoms that have not survived. They, they come and they go. But when you think of the kingdom of Christ, it never falters. It has begun, and it increases, and it increases, and it grows, and it never is crushed. It has no end. And I want us to think about seeing that more and more. Uh, I think our problem is we, we too often um, just want to walk by, by what we can see. So, well, I can't see the kingdom of Christ. I can see Cuba, and I can see Iraq, I can see Africa, I can see you know, these things, but I can't see the kingdom of Christ. And God says, you've got to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. And instead, we walk by sight and we, we refuse to believe. Refused to believe what? The promises. He promised a kingdom. The kingdom was established. He promised it would grow. He promised there would be no end. We need to trust it. But many times we don't. Uh, I, I, I remember, you know, we, just, just our temptation to, to only believe what we can see. 
I, I, I told my mom one day, I said, man, I am hungry. I'm hungry. I need something good to eat. She says, there's something good in the fridge. And, I, and I'm thinking, no, it's not. I've already checked. And she said, no, there's something good in the freezer, fridge. And I said, no, there's not. I've already checked. She says, trust me, there's something good in the refrigerator. No, there's not. Well, she's mom, so she made me look in the refrigerator again. But I'm thinking, I've already seen it. I trust my own eyes. It's not there. And she said, well, did you open the bottom drawer? And I thought to myself, didn't say this. No, there's lettuce in there. That's where you put lettuce. <laughs> and she said, open the bottom drawer. So I opened the bottom drawer, and there sat a delicious pecan pie. Ugh. There was something good in the fridge. I just didn't believe it. I didn't trust it. I'm always trusting my eyes. When I should have just trusted her promise. I promised there's something there. Go. And the same is true with God's word. He promises us stuff and we don't believe it. Because we think we're the authority and our eyes prove otherwise. Well, Christ's kingdom is here and it is growing. Uh, it's growing gradually and it's growing significantly. Think, just think about God's characteristics. He does things little by little. He does things gradually and he does things generationally. Even when he, when he drove out the people in the promised land, he promised the promised land, he delivers on his promise, but how does he do it? Little by little. You can look back at Deuteronomy 7 and see how it starts to unfold. He says, as a matter of fact, I'm not even going to um, uh, wipe out all the animals. And those guys, I said, the animals would, would overtake you, so I'm leaving lots of thorns and stuff. That's just a protection for you from all the animals, and I'm letting you take the people little by little. It's gradual increase. And, and they grow. Think about our own sanctification. It's little by little. We get set apart for Christ, and then little by little we grow. Think about the Word of God. It came to us over 1,500 years, little by little. To get too much too soon just whoo, blows you away. But God knows this, and, he, and He's doing the same thing with His kingdom. It's little by little, gradually growing and he uses a bunch of scripture to uh, show us that. Well, look at Matthew chapter 13. Just the gradual increase of his kingdom. Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, he, he's got the parable of the, the uh, soils right at the beginning there. Verse 3 says, Behold, the sower went out and he sowed. Well, uh, what did he end up with? Verse 8. Uh, so the, what, the, the, what he sowed was the word. What fell on good soil yielded a crop, some hundred, some sixty, some thirtyfold. So you, you see the word of God, he says, the kingdom of God is like the word of God just being poured out. And as the word of God goes out, it produces fruit, some thirty, some sixty, some a hundredfold. And you start seeing a gradual increase. Uh, look over at verse uh, 31. He says, the kingdom of heaven's like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it's full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air can come and nest in its branches. Same kind of thing that God says, I start small, but I, but I build. And it becomes bigger and greater than anything else. And look over at chapter 16, verse 18, as he's talking to Peter about the church. And he says, Matthew 16, verse 18, he says, I say to you that you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Christ says, I'm building something when I throw the word out. I'm building my church, and it will have no end. 
Nothing will overpower it. It will grow, and it will grow, and it will grow. That's the kingdom that Christ is producing. It's not universalism. It's not going to grow to the point that everybody gets saved. Even in the parables there in Matthew 13, he says there's always tares and wheat. When you sow something, you have the part that you could throw away and the part you keep. There will be those who will go to hell and there will be those who go to heaven. But those who go to heaven will be vast. It will be huge. It will be significant. It grows and grows and grows the kingdom of God. And he wants us to know that and see that. Um, and, uh, man, I'm running out of time, but it's just so many significant things. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, and just to uh, debunk that idea that uh, you're still looking for a national kingdom in Israel. Ephesians 2 is, is, is a passage that just makes it clear, don't be looking for that national kingdom. Look for the kingdom of Christ. Um, Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 11, says, Therefore remember that formerly the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, the people who were called circumcision were the Jews, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember, you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. So if you stop right there, if you were not a Jew, you had no hope because God was only saving Jews. He was, he was a national God over a national people. You were outside of that commonwealth. And so you were in a fix. He says, but, verse 13, but now in Christ, Christ changes it. In Christ, Jesus, you who were formerly far off, you were outside the state of Israel have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. We're not in conflict with the Jews. They're not in conflict with us. We're not in conflict with uh, nations. We have been brought to a state of peace through Christ. And this whole chapter goes on. He says, he said, I've made the Jew and the Gentile one in Christ. And so I have now power over every nation, tribe, and tongue, and I want you to go to every nation, tribe, and tongue and take dominion. Build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against that. That's this eternal kingdom. Now, it's interesting to me. I think there's, there's several things the liberals miss when they start um, calculating growth and influence and power. And this is it. Christian fertility rate is higher than any other group. We have more, more children, not a lot more, but uh, you know, any significant amount has gradual increase. We have more kids than the non-Christian groups. Second, we don't kill our kids. We're against abortion. We're pro-life. We want to sustain the child within us and disciple him. We've been taught by our king to teach him everything whatsoever God's commanded and to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's our passion. So not only do we want to, want to have kids, we want to keep kids, we want to teach and train kids, and we want to teach others. Not only do we want to teach our own kids, we want those around us to see it and believe as well because we have found the prince of peace the king of kings the lord of lords and so we share that as a result the church grows 
And people don't understand it. Um, I looked up uh, a few days ago. Uh, what did I? I wrote it down so I remember to tell you what I Googled in case you want to go Google it. Um, I, I Googled uh, Christian population growth. And if you Google that, Wikipedia is the first hit. And Wikipedia says that Christian population growth, we have grown uh, uh, three times faster than ever, but we've we tripled in size in the last hundred years. The church has grown, the kingdom people who declare themselves Christians has grown 41 times faster than population since the time of Christ, the last 2,000 years. That's our conversion rate. 65 million Christians, people are confessing to be a believer, come into the kingdom of God every year. 65 million. 10 million, or, or maybe it's 3 million, come in from other faiths. That's why the Muslims hate us. They have laws against Muslims becoming Christians because they see the growth of the Christian church. And here's what everybody misses, it seems like, like this, this whole agenda that thinks about population growth. One of the things they miss is that Christians, we're adding 65 million every year because we love life, because we train life, we lead people to Christ, and we want to sustain that, and not a single one of us ever dies. There's no decrease to the kingdom of God because he is the resurrection and the life. And once we're in the kingdom of God, we live forever. No other kingdom has that component. We alone have the king who is Lord of death and life. He's Lord over all. He says, if you believe in me, you will never die. So we increase. And God begins to, to build a place for us. And there's so many of us now in the last 2,000 years. I mean, you count the ones on earth, but you haven't counted the ones in the kingdom. The kingdom's in heaven and earth. Christ is head over heaven and earth. And we don't even have a number for it. Some of you are smart enough to know what a Google is. It's 10 to the hundredth power or one with a hundred zeros behind it. So I can count that. Take, take me a while, but I could count that. But when you get to heaven, God uses, doesn't use, I've got a kingdom now that's a Google. He doesn't say that. He says, I've got a kingdom that's myriads upon myriads. What's a myriad? A myriad is an uncountable number. It is that significant. That's the increase of his government. Again, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. That's the kingdom of Christ. It's not just a conversion story. It's a church building story of Christ building his church 
little by little, and though the gates of hell come against it, it never succeeds. The kingdom always increases. It always grows, little by little, and it's getting greater and greater and greater. So what's the application? I put four things down for you. Number one, trust the promise. Don't trust what you can see. So, well, I don't know that I can really see it. You don't have to see it. Walk by faith. See the promises of God being fulfilled. You can trust it. Um, there is going to be an end. First Corinthians, I don't have time to unpack. First Corinthians 15 is it talks about uh, the end of Christ's kingdom coming to an end when he abolishes the last enemy, and the last enemy is death. And he has that judgment day. There will be an end to life as we know it. But life in the kingdom of God continues to grow. It's the greatest expansion ever known. Uh, realize there's no small salvations, number two. If you are in Christ, that is significant. You are on the prevailing side. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. You will not wake up and say, oh man, I missed it. You will not be disappointed in Christ because his kingdom, his government has no end. No one can topple it. No one can destroy it. Um, Excited. Number three, let us uh, not become anxious over bad news. I love the psalm of Psalm 127 verse 7. It says, uh, the righteous man fears no bad news. Bring it on. Whatever you bring against me, it doesn't matter. You can't kill me. You can kill the body, but you can't kill me. I'm resurrected. And I'll have a glorified body, and I'll exist in God's kingdom forever. And it's so exciting that uh, nothing uh, can harm us or keep us from being in the kingdom of Christ. And one uh, comforting passage, Philippians chapter 4, also speaks about peace. But it says, verse 6, Don't be anxious for anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's a sense in which when you really begin to realize that Christ came to establish a kingdom, and he's the prince of peace, that your anxiousness can leave you. Why are you so anxious? you're not going to be wiped out. You're not going to have the rug pulled out from under you. You're not going to all of a sudden wake up and be on the losing side. Why are you anxious? The Prince of Peace is yours. Let his peace begin to rule. Let the confidence of who Christ is transform you so that you're not constantly worried. And then number four, uh, let's not forget the huge significance of the church of Christ. Do you spend time praying for and seeking to build the church? That's the kingdom of Christ. That's the hope of the world, is the church, because nothing prevails against it. The church never ends. It's God's instrument of peace, evangelism, and training in this world. His church. So our value upon that should be great. It's called world domination. It's the entity that dominates. It's the only institution that's right now in every nation, tribe, and tongue. And already has converts. 
and already is promoted into glory. There's no other kingdom like our Lord's. Let's pray together. Father, your word has, has big thoughts, big concepts, global concepts that sometimes we miss. We get caught in our own little world and we become anxious. And we miss the peace that was given to us when conflict between you and I was removed. Thank you, Father, for taking the enmity that was against us, for crushing and binding the power of Satan himself. Thank you for taking the warfare of Satan and his host away from us and giving us victory in Christ. Help us to see that even nations could come against us, but you have power and control over them as well, and that nothing will prevail against your church, that we never get wiped out. We're glorified and gather around the thrones. Father, let it be more and more exciting to be counted in that number, the myriads and myriads around the throne of God worshiping you. Thank you that we can do that as your militants on earth and those in heaven can do it as those who are triumphant forevermore. Father, help us to understand these things and may the peace of Christ rule our hearts. Father, for those who need Christ this morning, right where they are, may they reach out to you, God, and say, I want you to be my God. I want you to be my Lord. I need you, pro Prince of Peace. Father, save your people. Transform us for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.